All right, well, we have sung about, we have read about, we have prayed about and celebrated that Jesus rose from the grave. Um, But I want us to pause now and ask, what does that mean for us today? On Friday, we talked about the implications of his death, that our sin could be paid for, the wrath of God that we deserve, that he would pass over those, thank you, trusting in Christ. He died as our substitute. What are the implications of his life? What does that mean for us today? On one hand, the the resurrection is the the culmination of his death. It's this stamp of approval from God that, that his death was and did what he said it would be and do. But it's also a celebration that through his death, we have new life, eternal life, abundant life. Life that comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus. Life that is filled with blessing and hope that we do not have outside of him. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and we've come to this pinnacle moment, the Passover. This is a a turning point in the book, and and believe it or not, the Passover uh, is God teaching His people, teaching us uh, not only the meaning of what happened on the cross of Jesus, as as we talked about on Friday, we see that relatively clearly, the death of the Lamb pointing forward to Christ, but but it also points forward to, to new life. How do we get that? How do we see the resurrection of Christ in the Passover? Uh, I don't know if you've been reading ahead, but the lamb doesn't get up again. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, But if you look closely, the Passover tells us about this new life. It, It points forward to this radically transformed life on the other side of our rescue. The fullness of life that Jesus offers, what the resurrection promises. I'll show you what I'm looking at. Israel was God's people. They had been captive in Egypt for 430 years. The Lord had promised that He would rescue them, that He would bring them into the land that He had promised to Abraham so many years before that. And now He's making good on that promise. Nine plagues have come and gone. Egypt is in destruction and absolute ruin. Pharaoh is all but broken, and the Lord now brings this final plague. The angel of death would come and slay the firstborn in every family, from the house of Pharaoh to the house of the slave girl. And we talked about on Friday the the significance of this plague. It was about so much more than just Israel coming out of Egypt. Right at the center of the Exodus is God saying, this is who I am. This is how I rescue. Let me show myself to you, to the world. The Lord is using this as this massive object lesson. Showing there's this unavoidable penalty for sin and its death. And through the Passover, showing that, that, that He would actually pardon sinners. And that He would, he would do it. By providing this substitute on their behalf, the Passover lamb would die in the place of the child. And that's not only how God would rescue Israel from Egypt, it's how He would rescue His people from sin. He's saying, this is how I work. This is what it's going to look like. 
You see, God had promised from the very beginning, back in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to send one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to finish this battle between good and evil, who's going to break the curse of sin once for all. The rescuer is coming, and he's been displaying little pieces at a time. This is what it's going to look like. This is how I'm going to do it. This is how he's going to be. And, and the Passover is this densely packed, clear display of of how he's going to rescue, what it's going to look like when it finally comes. The Passover lamb pointed to Jesus, who died as our substitute, died in our place for our sin. He died that we might have life. And as the Passover freed Israel from bondage to Egypt, so Jesus died to free us from bondage to sin. So again, his resurrection is both proof that his sacrifice was sufficient, acceptable to God, but also this promise of new life, new life in him, this this freedom from sin for all who would follow him, a new life that is pre-shadowed in the Passover feast. Passover shows us the implications, the blessings of this new life. And, and it's not just, not just escaping judgment in the end. That's not all the cross was about. It's about new life here and now, today. So let's dig in and see what that looks like. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus 12. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one to you. We want, we want you to have God's Word open in your lap in front of you that you can see uh, His Word and not only my words. The celebration of the death of Jesus on our behalf and his resurrection from the grave brings us to this question, what does it mean that we have this new life? What does it mean to live in the resurrection now? And the first thing we see as we read through this passage is something that I think as North Americans we don't expect. And so this new life is life in the community of faith. Listen to the language used here. I'm going to read uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. The first thing the Lord tells us, tells them is, you have a new calendar now. Throw the old ones out. They're no good anymore. This month is going to be the the first month in your year. Happy New Year. This is significant. He's telling them, this is your national identity. This is who you are together. Your annual calendar is going to revolve around this day. And through the Passover, the Lord is is continuing to to form and and to, to make and unite this nation of Israel. He's bringing them together around this shared identity. This is who you are as a people. And even as it goes down, every man is to take a lamb according to his household. 
And if his household is too small, he's to pull in the neighbors and they're to gather together and do it. You see the community of faith here. We get so wrapped up in our individualism as North Americans. We love to be an island to ourselves. I do my thing, you do your thing, and and I don't want to admit needing help. I don't want people to get too close. That's a North American value. That's not a biblical value. Passover was to bring them together as a community. And, And as we approach Christ, yeah, there's personal faith that must be there, and yet we come together. We come as the people of God. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. It just directly counters everything that Christ is doing. He's saving people and gathering them together into a church, into a body. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, For just as the body is, is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. And so it is with Christ, for in one spirit you were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slave and free. You were all made to drink of one spirit. To be a Christian is to be part of the body. And the body is, in in one sense, across time and space. It's, It's all of the believers, but it shows up practically, visibly, right here. And down the street at First Baptist and, and Home Church. It's the local churches gathered, the visible church. To try to follow Jesus without being part of a local church is, is like saying, I'm going I'm to be a finger, but I don't need that hand. Uh, it's really quite pointless. It's absurd. Listen to Ephesians 4. Describing the church, Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We grow together. We grow as each joint and ligament is pulling on one another and holding each other together and and pressing one another forward. That's what it means to be the church. Again, as North Americans, we don't do well with community. We don't do well having people into our homes and having that kind of open door, sharing lives with one another. We need to grow in this. Because we're robbing ourselves of one of the great benefits of the resurrection. This is a gift from God to say, here, I have gathered you together. And we're so quick to say, no, no, I don't don't want that. I don't need that. I'm I'm gonna stay over here. Now, coming to Christ... This new life in the resurrection is about living in the community of faith. It's inseparably connected to other believers. And and the Bible fills that out, tells us pretty explicitly what that looks like as we worship together, preach the word uh, under the leadership of elders and baptism and communion and bearing one another's burdens and serving one another and all the rest. It's, It's not optional. It's what it means to be part of the body. It's a gracious gift from God and we need it. I want to challenge you, live in the community of faith. Second, the blessing of the new life in Christ that we see in the Passover is that we get to live under the covering of faith. Verses 7 to 10, let me read them for us. It says, Then they shall take some of the blood, And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. 
And they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. This was the central piece of the Passover and the sacrifice of the Lamb. The Lord had warned, the angel of death is coming, which is God himself. The destroyer would kill every firstborn. That was the penalty for sin. And the only way to avoid that was to kill a lamb. To take the blood of the lamb and to put on the lintel, that's the top of the door frame and the two door posts. And the blood of the lamb on the door uh, was an act of acknowledging that, that we were in danger of God's judgment. That we deserved it. Admitting that, that we needed protection. The protection that the lamb offered in an act of trust in God that he would keep his promise that he would indeed pass over those who smeared the blood. We all live guilty of sin under this death penalty that we deserve. The judgment that God unleashed against Egypt in all ten of the plagues, culminating in the death of the firstborn children, was just a foretaste, was just a drop from the bucket of God saying, this is what it will be like. Pointing forward to a much greater judgment that will come. But the Passover lamb was likewise just a foretaste. Just a shadow pointing forward to something so much greater, a far greater rescue, a rescue that God would one day accomplish, and not just the death of a lamb, but the death of His only Son. Not just that sin could be temporarily overlooked, but actually covered, actually dealt with. So the death and resurrection of Jesus calls us, even demands us to live under that covering. As we do that, we say the same way Israel did, that we're acknowledging that we are in danger of God's judgment. We're admitting that, that, that we are personally in need of protection of His sacrifice and we're trusting in God that, that this substitute would be enough, that He would in fact save those, rescue those, pass over those who trust in Jesus. So we don't put the blood on the door, but the act of the heart is one and the same. Are you living in the blessing of that covering of faith? There's no other way to be right with God but to acknowledge our sin and our need for a Savior. But I love thinking about this as well. The blessing of that covering. Imagine two Israelites that night out in front of their homes Lamb has been killed, their hands are bloody, and they're smearing the blood on the doorposts. And the one man, as he smears the blood, is confident and sure. God has done it. Nine times he has proven himself. He spoke and it happened. He's been building to this moment. He's going to do it. I am confident this blood will protect my family we will be rescued. We're getting out of here. We're leaving Egypt. I have no doubt. But the other man, 
trembles and shakes. He almost spills the blood from his basin as he applies it to the door. And quivering voice through tears, he says, I'm so afraid. I don't know. I'm so scared for my firstborn. I fear for my child. I fear that that maybe we're not getting out of here. Why would God spare us? Our enemy is so powerful in Egypt. And they both finish smearing the blood and go back into their homes, one to celebrate and the other to huddle together with his family. Let me ask you, when the angel of death comes, which family is protected? Which home will be safe from the destroyer? Which family will walk triumphantly out of Egypt the next day? The answer is both. Both of them. Because it doesn't depend on the level of their confidence or the strength of their faith. It depends on the object of their faith. The confident assurance and the quivering hope are both alike dependent on the same God who saves. Both alike looked to the Lamb. Both alike smeared the blood on the door. And both alike will be rescued. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Do you trust Him? Are you able, even in fear and trembling, to put your hope in Jesus who saves? To cry out to Him? The blessing of the resurrection is it's not about us. And the more we look at us and question the more unsure we get when you turn our eyes on Him. He is able. It's about the covering for sin. So we want to live in that community of faith and live in that covering for sin, but then flowing out of that, looking less and less to ourselves and more and more to Him, it ought to lead us to confidence of faith. I love these verses 11 to 13. Let me read them for us. It says, in this manner you shall eat of it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the, people, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is going to strike Egypt. He is going to crush them. So how is it that they're to eat this meal? They're to eat it with their belt fastened. They're to eat it with their sandals on their feet, ready to walk, ready to go. They were to eat it with their staff in their hand. That's, a, that's an awkward way to eat a meal. You would notice this. This is a strange thing to do. They were to eat it in haste. Why? Because after 430 years and nine spectacular plagues pounding against the hardened heart of Pharaoh, this last plague was it. They were leaving. They were going out of Egypt. On to the promised land. And it's not the strength of our faith that saves, but but one of the blessings of our faith, one of the blessings that we should gain from the resurrection is, is this kind of confidence, this kind of hope in the future. I know we're not in the promised land yet. We're reminded of that all too bitterly this morning, seeing 
the death of 200 people in Sri Lanka, many of them because they were Christians. We still feel the pain and suffering in this world. We still feel that battle in our own hearts, and sometimes we're losing that battle more than we'd like, probably always. But the resurrection of Jesus... The fact that he has gone through death and come out the other side gives us this this confident hope. The battle's been won. It's been finished. Our old master has been defeated. We have been set free. This earth will not be my cell forever. We're getting out of here. Listen to Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible that he be held by it. He rose from the grave. He was victorious over our greatest enemy on our behalf. John 14, 9, Jesus says, Because I live, you too shall live. We have that victory now. We live in that new life. Paul writes in Romans 6, 8, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Christian, do you live with that kind of confidence? Confidence that sin is beaten. Don't don't wallow in insecurity and self-pity. Don't keep going back to serving that old master as if he were still your master. He's not. Wondering, doubting if God really loves you, if we really can be forgiven, if we really can live in holiness, if we're just doomed to sin. No, look at the cross. More than that, look at the empty tomb. The resurrection gives us something that Israel never had. This visible assurance, this stamp of God's approval, a hope of one who has already gone ahead of us, who has overcome sin and the grave. These are rich blessings of the resurrection, these promises of new life. Live in the community of faith. Live under the covering of faith and live in that that confidence of faith. And the accumulation of those brings us to a fourth blessing of the new life. And it's life consistent with our faith. Two parts to this. 4A is life consistent with our faith as a life of holiness. It actually takes us beyond the Passover into a second festival, a festival that that was intertwined with the Passover in many ways, the festival of unleavened bread. Picking up at verse 14, it says, This day for you shall be a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove the leaven out from your houses. For if anyone eats this leaven, eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. 
And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he's a sojourner or a native in the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Okay, so what is leaven? And what on earth does this mean for us? Leaven is basically yeast. Uh, They don't do it like we do it. They did it like we would do sourdough. They'd pull a chunk out of the one leaven lump and bake that and add that lump to their next loaf and it would cause it to rise and so what, what does God have against fluffy bread? I mean, we've got some nice buns on the counter ready to go for Easter dinner. Do we have to throw those away? Now, God has nothing against light, fluffy bread. But the reality was this, that first Passover, um, their meal had to be in haste, ready to go, ready to leave. And so the bread that they cooked wouldn't have time to rise. They were to make unleavened bread so that it was ready to go. And so generations in the future were to cook with unleavened bread, reminding them of that rescue, how God brought them out of their slavery quickly and completely. And by celebrating this feast, cleansing all the leaven out of their houses, eating only unleavened bread for seven days was that reminder. So as we learned the Passover dinner um, we did last week, they had this tradition leading up to that first day of unleavened bread. The, the wife would go through the house and throw out all of the leavened bread and whatever she had right down to the last little bit. Um, but it was the husband's job to certify that the house had been cleaned of all leaven. And so um, she would leave a little pile. And if she was kind and in a good mood, she would leave it somewhere obvious where her husband could find it. And he would come in with a feather and s- scoop that into a wooden spoon and wrap it in a cloth and take it down to the synagogue and burn it and certify that the house was cleansed of all leaven and that would begin the feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. What does this mean for us? Where do we go from here? Well, leaven was used as a metaphor for sin. Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 5. He's talking about sin in the church and how the church was to remove sin from its body. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says this, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Because the Passover lamb is sacrificed, because we've been rescued out of our Egypt, our slavery to sin and death, we ought to live consistent with our faith. We ought to live as this unleavened lump, listen, as you really are. It's the truth of who we are. We've been rescued out of sin, now live like it. This is a great blessing of the resurrection. This new life, this life of freedom from sin. 
You've been made clean. And so Paul says in in Romans 8 that we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin. Why? Because we are dead to sin. We've been rescued. Don't go back there. Rather, we ought to root it out. We ought to diligently search for it. Clean out the house. Every last crumb, get rid of it. Burn it. Don't be complacent about sin. Don't just dismiss the little sins. We're so quick to think, oh, I I have this one under control. I have it contained in my little box here, and I'll keep it here in the dark, and no one needs to know. Oh, just this one time, that doesn't really matter. That's not really a sin. It's generally acceptable. Everybody knows this is okay. Technically, it's a sin, but no. Sin is like leaven. It works its way. You can't contain it. You can't keep it. It's small, but it's significant. It's potent. A little leaven works through the whole loaf. It contaminates everything. Like weeds in a garden, that one root left unchecked begins to just proliferate and take over until there's no room for fruit to grow. Don't be passive about sin. Hunt it down. Root it out. Because we've been freed from sin. This new life and the resurrection is a life of holiness, a life that's not shaped and formed by the lies of the world, but that's, that's obedient to Christ. It reflects our freedom from slavery. That's there for us. You can have that. You can have freedom and victory over sin. Because Christ has been raised. So living consistently with our faith means living in holiness, but then he follows that, I think, with a challenge right back um, to the Passover, reminding us that it's a life lived in humility. It's humility. He goes right back to the death of the Lamb. We'll pick up in verse 21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts and the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses, to strike you. He's explained it. He's told them how to do it. Now he's telling them, go do it. Uh, When you see these repetitive passages and you're thinking, boy, I already read this. You already said this. It's always interesting to look for what's new. Look for what's added this time as he says it. Almost the same thing. But there's a significant warning added here. Not one of you should go out of your house until morning. Stay in the house. Why? Because you're not special. Because even as clean as your house might be, as much leaven as you may have pulled out, it is only the covering of blood that saves. If you're not inside that house, if you're not buried inside that door covered in the blood of the Lamb, it doesn't matter. You will die like the Egyptians. You're not special. We so often need to be reminded of this, church. We so often think that we're somehow special. This is about me and what I've done, that I've cleansed my house. 
And the church, the church of all places, becomes a place where people feel like they need to clean themselves up to go in. Oh, something's wrong with that, church. They feel like sinners would be unwelcome in that place. We begin to feel like we're special. We're different from everyone else. The reason I'm here is that my life is better. My life is cleaner. My life is a little more together. We start lying about our sin, covering it up. We put on masks when we come to church, pretending like our lives are better than they are, faking that smile again on Sunday morning, keeping that skeleton buried deep, deep in the closet. Nobody can know about that. And then we become proud of the fake person that we've put up, and our gatherings become sterile and clean and fake. And a sinner comes in and feels absolutely unwelcome. They don't belong here. We don't want them here. Their life is messy and and dirty. As if they're different than we are. Hypocrites. Friends, stay in the house. Don't, Don't ever forget the only thing that makes us different is the blood of Christ. It's that covering for sin that we desperately rely on. This is not a gathering place for people with no sin problem. This is the gathering place of desperate sinners who need a Savior. This should be the place where you can go and be confident that the people there all see themselves as wretched sinners. They have the same battles You share your deepest struggle and they go, oh, I know that struggle. I've fought that battle. I feel that in my heart too. And the beauty is inside the house, under the covering of the blood, the threat of judgment is gone. We can be honest here. We can be open about our sin. There's no need for masks because Christ has taken away the shame and the judgment. If you're looking for the gathering of the squeaky clean, the manicured smiles and the Instagram-worthy lives, it's not here. I'm not sure where they meet, but it's not here. If you're a sinner who desperately needs a Savior, if you're doing battle with sin day after day and you go to bed some nights feeling like you have just let the Lord down and you are the worst of all sinners, hey, you're going to find a home here. We're on the same journey Now, you need to know we're going to love you enough not to leave each other there. We're going to love one another enough enough to say, hey, grow in this. Let's pursue holiness together. Let's fight this fight together. Let's continue to, to battle against sin. Don't let it rule you. It's not your master anymore. If you want to make friends with sin, if you want to be comfortable with sin, this will be an uncomfortable place for you. Because we're going to challenge you on that, but we're going to do it understanding the fact that that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Not one of us dares venture outside of that house. It's one of the greatest blessings of the resurrected life. Living consistently with our faith and living in holiness as is this unleavened loaf, but living in honesty and humility in grace. We can go forward. We can, we can fall flat on our faces and say, thank you, God, that you have died for me. 
we can be honest with our brothers and ask them to help pull us up out of the mud and continue moving forward. It's the kind of community, the kind of fellowship that we want to continue to foster here, and I know it happens here. It happens here in beautiful ways, and I love to see that. Living in the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus means living in that community of faith under the covering of faith. Living this life uh, consistent with our faith in holiness and humility. And then finally, um, verses 24 to 28, it's life in the conversation of faith. Listen to this. Verse 24, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. It was a rite. It was a religious observance that they were to practice every year. At the beginning of the year, their whole calendar revolved around this. It was their identity. And they were to keep this service forever. From generation to generation, they were to pass it down. It was first and foremost for their own children. When their children watched them participate in this service, they would ask, what does this mean? And actually, the the Jews did a marvelous job of this. Um, They made sure it would happen. They scripted questions for their kids. And so as they sat down to the Passover meal, they had it written out. Okay, son, now you say, why on this night do we eat unleavened bread? Father, why on this night do we eat bitter herbs? Father, why on this night? What's the meaning of all of this? Glad you asked, son. And they would explain the story of the Exodus. Again, they'd heard it every year of their life, probably multiple times a year, over and over again. This is how God rescued His people and He struck down Egypt and He spared us by the the death of the Lamb. It was to be this constant and continuing conversation about the God who saves about the blessings of the community and the covering and and the consistent life that ought to flow out of that. Fathers, how are you doing at this? Mothers, you're called to be your husband's helper in this. How are we doing at this? Are you living in this blessing of, of being able to pass this down to your kids? When's the last time your child asked, Dad, why do we live this way? Dad, my, my friends all get to watch those movies. How come I don't? Why do we have these traditions? Why do we do the things that we do? Maybe you need to get more creative. Maybe you need to script some questions. Hey, son, have you ever wondered why we go to church every Sunday? Let me tell you about the community of faith and the richness of it. Let me show you there's so much more happening here than what you see. Hey, son, do you ever wonder why we pray? Before every meal, let me tell you about this God and how He provides for us and cares for us. He's one of the most effective ones. Honey, do you know why Daddy just spanked your bottom? Let me tell you about the pain of sin 
the punishment of sin and the God who's come to rescue sinners like you and like me. Deuteronomy 6 says, And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. It begins with us. We ought to have them on our hearts. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your houses and your gates. We ought to have Scripture in our home. It ought to be on our lips for our kids to hear. The Bible ought to be open at the dinner table. The Bible ought to be open as we discipline our children and as we encourage good things that we see in them. Is it always on your lips? I had this heartbreaking conversation with a friend of mine, I guess a couple years ago now. I hadn't seen him for a while, and during that time, his kids grew from kind of middle school, um, junior high age to having graduated and out of the house. And and he began telling me how each one of them, one by one, had graduated and walked away from the church. Walked away from God. And with tears in his eyes, he told me, John, we did everything right. We did everything we could to raise them to know the Lord, and they walked away. And Now, I've got to stop and be clear. Sometimes that is so very true. We don't save our kids. We don't have that kind of power. We are representatives of the God who saves and we lead them to Christ, but it's Christ who saves. But my heart broke in this situation because what I saw was a family that consistently used every excuse. Just tired this week. We're not going to church. There's a hockey game on. There's a sports event. We'd rather go camping. We'd rather do a family thing. Our noses are runny. They just seem to jump at every opportunity. I don't think the Bible was ever opened at the dinner table. I don't think there were spiritual conversations happening between father and son. And as much as he said that they raised their kids and did everything they could to teach them to follow the Lord, the kids saw their actions and their hearts. And, and what is done out of tradition and obligation by one generation will almost always be put off by the next. That's to start in our hearts. We have to understand, why am I doing this? And what are we doing? And does this actually matter? Kids have really good hypocrisy radar. In this situation, the damage was done. I, I didn't see any value in saying anything what could be said anyways. But I don't want to have that conversation with you. I hope you don't have to have that conversation with me. We need to be living our faith out for our children to see, teaching them diligently. Let no day go by that you're not pointing them to Christ again and again. Not out of obligation, but out of this overflow of love and worship from our own hearts. That we get to say, I love going to church. Let me show you why. And they can can see that's real in us. Now maybe your kids are grown and you're past that. What's done is done. You did the best that you knew how to do. And again, our best parenting efforts are in desperate need of grace. But that opportunity isn't altogether gone. You're still mom and dad. You still have those opportunities with grown children 
to say, hey, where are you going? What's your life really about? What, is, what matters to you? Remember the things that we talked about? Or maybe you need to say, hey, you know what? I let you down. I need to go back and revisit some of the things that I said as a parent. There's grace. The best ways to point our kids to grace is to show them that we need it. What about grandchildren? You have the opportunity to pour into them, to be a gospel witness there. And it doesn't stop with our families. If you remember back to Exodus 9.16. The Lord said to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up to show my power that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Jesus, after his death and resurrection, before ascending to heaven, left these marching orders for the church. For us, you know them well. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's, that's the conversation of faith. That's what it ought to be always on our lips. As we live this radical life, this life that makes no sense apart from a, a crucified and resurrected Lord. We have this joy, this blessing of telling people, here's why. Yep, I have some weird things that I do in my life. Let me tell you why. It's to be constant and continuing on. But what about the Passover, you ask? What about killing the lamb and putting the blood on the door. Wasn't that to be constant and continual? Don't we keep doing that as well? And the answer is, we don't do that anymore because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. What bread? It's the unleavened bread of the Passover meal. And he said, this is my body, this is my sinless body broken for you and he took the cup what cup well, one of the four cups that they used to commemorate the passover the third cup the cup of redemption that reminded them of the price that was paid the blood of the lamb spilled for them and he said this is my blood poured out for you this is the kind of thing that, that Jesus was talking about when he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. This is how we continue to walk in obedience to what was said in the Old Testament. We're living out the reality of it. It would be ridiculous for us to go to, back to celebrating a lamb, to killing a lamb. We celebrate the fullness of the Passover. We celebrate the reality that it was just pointing forward to. We live in this community of faith under the covering of faith and the confidence of faith, consistent with our faith in holiness and humility and, and constantly engaging this conversation of faith, that's us walking in the Passover, fulfilling our part of it. And as we remind one another what God has done, celebrating communion together, eating the bread and drinking the cup. You ever wonder... Why Jesus used the bread and the cup and not the lamb, which was the central element of the Passover? It's because the lamb's not dead. It's because he's risen. He's coming back. He'll show up again in Revelation as the lamb looked like it was been slain, but is also a lion. So as we live in the blessing of this resurrection, we wait eagerly for that day.
We eat and drink remembering His death, but also rejoicing in His life and the hope that it brings.